Good morning again, everyone. It's good to have you here worshiping together this morning. And uh, we are in our second week in a series on the book of Ephesians. And last week we talked about uh, verses 1 and 2 and kind of dove into the book a little bit. If, uh, if you weren't here last week, I want to just let you know you can always go to our website and you can listen to the message there. You can download the message there. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast and you can receive uh, the sermons as well. So that's kind of a way to keep up if you uh, happen to miss a weekend. But uh, this weekend is our, our second in the book of Ephesians and we are... Uh, we covered verses 1 and 2, and now we're going to come to the next sentence um, of Ephesians. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open those up. And I want to I read this for you. I don't know if um, you've ever had a conversation with somebody who, who gets so excited and they have so much to say and everything just starts coming out really fast and it gets really hard to keep up with them. That's kind of what's happening in the third verse of Ephesians. And so uh, I want to read it for you. And I'm going to do the best I can. My voice isn't um, <clears throat> fully cooperating this morning, but I'm going to read this for you and put it up on the screen. And what I'm about to read you, starting in verse 3, is uh, in the Greek language is, is just one sentence. Now, in the English, we put some periods and commas and stuff in there because it makes it a little bit easier to comprehend. But I'm going to read for you the next sentence and see if you can kind of pick up a little bit on the excitement that Paul has as he kind of dives into this letter. And he starts in verse 3 this way, he says this, Now, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Same sentence. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Same sentence, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Same sentence, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when, uh, when the times will have been reached, their fulfillment, uh, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Same sentence, in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Same sentence, and you who were included in Christ uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 265 words in the English language that Paul crams in to one sentence. And what Paul is trying to say to us in a whole lot of words here is thus. He's saying to believers, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you need to understand that spiritually you're absolutely filthy, stinking rich. And so it takes a whole lot of words that he wants to cram into this to tell us, but he wants us to know that we're rich. Now, when we talk about rich, we usually think about, you know, rich. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. But we often think of rich. And this week, uh, I was reading about a woman who lived in the, uh, uh, from 1834 to 1916. So it was a while ago. Her name was Hetty Green. And at the age of 21, Hetty inherited $7.5 million. This is in 1855. 
She inherited seven and a half million dollars from her dad. And she became the first woman to really get involved in Wall Street. And she turned that seven and a half million dollars into 200 million dollars. And eventually, by the time she died, in today's uh, numbers, she was worth 17 billion dollars. She was the richest woman on the earth at the time. Some say she may still be uh, an all-time the richest woman to ever live. But now I want, you, I want you to understand, this is a picture of her. I want you to get a picture of the lifestyle that this $17 billion woman lived. Because I don't know how you would live if you had $17 billion, but probably not how she lived. For instance, we're told that she ate cold oatmeal every morning. Not because she liked it, but because she wasn't about to pay to heat up the oatmeal. She wasn't going to do it. Because she was only worth, I don't know, $17 billion. She never turned on the heat in her house, not even for her kids. She never turned the hot water on in her house. We're told that she only owned one black dress, like this one, at a time with a black hat. And she would wear it every single day until it wore out, including her undergarments. Eh? Every day until it wore out. And then she would get a new set. But she'd only own one at a time. And she'd wear that every day. And people said it was a little uncomfortable to be around her. There's a story told, there's a story told about how she spent a half a night searching in her carriage for a two cent stamp that she lost. And you might be thinking, I don't know if I admire her or if she's a kook. Uh, She suffered uh, from a bad hernia in middle age. It was painful for her, but she refused to have surgery because it was $150. But here's here's really the picture to give you an idea of what this woman was really like. When When her son was young, He injured his knee, and uh, she wasn't about to pay for a doctor, so she kind of treated it. She wasn't a physician, but she treated the knee herself, and it wouldn't heal. And a year later, she decided, a year later, it still hasn't healed. She needs to get it looked into. So she dresses him in rags, and she wears a disguise, and she goes down to the local clinic for people who don't have jobs. And she takes her son in and and the doctor's looking at her and he recognizes who she is and he demands that she pay for treatment. So she's so angry, she storms out of that place refusing to pay. And six months later, her son's knee had gotten so bad that he had to have his leg amputated. She's worth $17 billion dollars. And she won't even take care of her son. She's, she's absolutely rich, but she's living like a poor person. It's been said that many Christians are kind of like that spiritually. We are absolutely filthy rich spiritually. But we live like poor people sometimes. Sometimes as Christians, even though we're absolutely rich in Christ, we have kind of poor attitudes you know, uh, attitudes that don't really reflect the richness of what we have in Christ. Sometimes our faith is very poor, is very weak. It doesn't reflect who we really are in Christ. Sometimes our character is very poor for people who are actually very rich. Sometimes the words that come out of our mouth, sometimes our priorities and our, our perspective on life aren't the perspective of rich people. And so Paul is going to kind of dive in to this concept of what it means to be rich in Christ because he doesn't want us to live like poor people. People who are actually rich, but people who live very poor. People who look a little bit like this woman, spiritually. And so in verse three, Paul writes us, he's, he's just gonna kind of dive into this passage, verses three through 14, and he says this. He starts this way, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, Paul is kind of going back to what we talked about last week. He says, we live in two worlds. We live in a physical world and we live in a spiritual world. We, we have uh, bodies and, and they're physical. We have a physical world around us that we can touch, that we can feel, that we can sense. But we are also spiritual people. We have a soul that's immaterial and there is a part of us that is spiritual, that can't be touched that, that isn't part of this world, if you will. That's what Paul wants to talk about. He uses this phrase, heavenly realms. And when he says heavenly realms, he's just talking about the unseen world around us. We're told in the Bible that there is a heaven that we can't see yet. Scientists tell us, in fact, that there is a world around us. There are extra dimensions around us. Scientists tell us that are very real but we can't see them or feel them or interact with them. And that's part of what Paul's saying here. There's a real world right here in this room that we can't detect. There are other things going on that we can't see. It's part of the immaterial world. And there's our soul as well, which is immaterial. In fact, the Bible says that the invisible realities in many ways are more real than the physical realities around us because the physical realities are temporary. You know, we have a body and, and, and maybe some of you, you're kind of, I'm starting to realize my body's temporary. Anyone else? I just, you know, as I get older, I'm like, wow, some things are just not, they're kind of wearing out, you know, and, and I'm starting to realize that. You know, we live in a world where everything is, that we can see, touch, feel. We can grab a hold of this temporary. We, we're surrounded by stuff. We live in a universe that's temporary. But spiritual realities reach into eternity. They go on and on and on. So Paul says, I want to talk about this spiritual reality, this, this heavenly realm that you exist in. And then he uses this phrase, he says, with every spiritual blessing. So we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And when you read that, that phrase there, it kind of looks like what Paul's talking about is the extent of our blessing. We have every kind of blessing. This is one of those times when um, it's a little disappointing. I've read uh, Bible version after Bible version and none of them bring out the real sense of this phrase. So I want to I bring it out for you. That word, spiritual, in the Greek is the word pneumatikos. And uh, the word pneumatikos in the Greek is always a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. So when you read this passage, you don't really get what Paul's pointing at here. So I want to kind of correct this for you a little bit. He's not saying God's given you every kind of blessing, even though maybe he has. What he's pointing to here is he wants you to think about the source. Where do the blessings come from? And here's a more of a literal translation from the Greek where Paul says we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every blessing of the Spirit. He's pointing to where these blessings come from. In fact, in this passage, what we notice is this. In verse 3, we have the Father, and he talks about the blessings of the Father, the blessings of the Son, and the blessings of the Holy Spirit. And from verses 4 through 14, he's going to kind of break this down for us and talk about some of the ways, not every way, but some of the ways that the Father's blessed us, the Son's blessed us, the Spirit's blessed us. And we're just going to look at the first part today. Aren't you glad? We're just going to look at some of the blessings of the Father, just a few, in fact, that he wants to point out that are huge. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of sum it up this way. When we think about how has God the Father blessed us, the, the Father has blessed us with his love. And uh, I don't know that I have any notes, but you might write that word down because that summarizes everything that we're going to talk about this morning. God has blessed us with this love. And that, that love is expressed in this passage in three ways. If, if you've given your life to Christ, you need to understand that God's love has been extended to you in three very interesting, substantial ways. The first is this, that God, he says, has chosen us. 
God has chosen those of us who are believers. And again, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, For God chose us in him before the creation of the world. And it goes on in verse 5, and it says, And he predestined us. And these words, the word chose and the word predestined in this passage that we're looking at over the next three weeks, each of these words appear twice. The word chose in the Greek, eklego, simply means to select something, to, to pick something out from a group of things. And the word predestined simply means to predetermine something. And so when we put these two words together, we get a doctrine. If you've ever read um, systematic theology or doctrinal books, sometimes you'll hear about the doctrine of election. So if that kind of rings a bell, um, then you know a little bit of what we're talking about. If it doesn't, don't worry. Hopefully in a few minutes you'll, you'll get this here. But basically people read verses like this in the Bible about choosing and predestination and election, and they see those words. And we've kind of wrapped all that together, and we call it the doctrine of election. And in the doctrine of election in the church, you'll find over the years, over the last 2,000 years, people have kind of gravitated towards one view or another view. And, and those views, quite frankly, often they don't get along very well. And there's probably a practical reason for that. The first view that people take on this concept of God choosing people for salvation is what we might call um, the group. Sometimes they're called, it's called the view of election. Sometimes uh, the view is called predestination. Sometimes it's called in a bigger context, Calvinism. I've put a few things in your notes, a little definition of that. When we talk about election in this group, they basically believe that God's election, God's choosing of people is unconditional. It's not predicated on forcing faith in the believer, but according to sovereign purposes. In other words, what it means is before God made anyone, before you ever did anything good, before you ever did anything bad at all, God decided who would be saved and who wouldn't be saved. God chose people for salvation. Uh, the people in this group will say that sin makes us spiritually dead and dead people can't make choices. So God chooses. And some of the verses they'll use, and I've, I've noted some others there, but John fifteen sixteen is one. Jesus is talking to, to his disciples. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. You didn't come to me. I chose you. Uh, another verse of John six forty four. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draw in the Greek has the idea of an irresistible force. In fact, it was used in ancient Greek literature to describe a desperately hungry person who was being drawn to food. So election for this group simply means that God irresistibly draws to himself people that he's predetermined to love and to forgive. And what you'll find is if you look out in the Christian community, there's, there's quite a few people that, that hold, that adhere to this view. But there's another view, as you might guess. And we often call that the, the free will view. And people who believe in free will will look at a passage like the one in Ephesians, and this is how they'll read it. They'll say, God elects people who he foresees will respond in faith to the gospel. In other words, what they believe is God has made us free moral agents. We get to choose things in life. And one of the things we get to choose is our destiny and what we'll do with Christ. And so when they see the word election, what they're seeing is this. They say that God knew before any of us were created, God knew who would respond to the gospel. And then God took each one of those 
people who he knew would respond. And then he chose them. He kind of pulled them out in some different ways and said, now, because you, I know you're going to make that choice, I'm choosing you to be. And there's some things in scripture. You'll be holy. You'll be my witnesses. You'll be uh, blameless. And, and some other things that we see in scripture. So these two groups read the same verses, but they read them in really different ways. People in the free world view like to use verses like John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And notice that whoever believes. And so let's say, God will never turn away anyone who decides to respond to his offer of salvation. And in fact, when you read the Bible, it's full of choices, isn't it? The Bible says things like believe. It says follow. It says repent. It says to obey. People in this view believe that these are commands that God's given us because we have choices to make and will ultimately be held responsible for our choices. So in the Christian community, over the years, you, you have kind of these two different camps. And I find that most of us tend to gravitate towards one camp or the other over the years. Uh, I've been in uh, more in one camp and, and then I've spent more time in the other camp. But I find that most of us, we can't live with the tension of having some verses seem to say God chooses and some verses that seem to say we choose. So some people, they just like to become free will people, you know? And, uh, and when they read verses like John 3, 16, they like to say, see, we get to choose. But then when they read other verses that seem to say that God chooses, they've come up with a really elaborate way of explaining away, of twisting those verses and, you know, making it say what they want to say. And you'll find on the other side that, that people who really believe that God chooses, they've got all sorts of verses in the Bible where you just read them and it's like, they'll be, see, that, that's what it says. But there'll be other verses like John three sixteen, and they'll find ways to twist it and bend it and make it say something else. And people have argued over this. People have debated over this. People have fought over this. People have been condemned. People have been put to death over this over this issue, and it has divided the church over the years. It reminds me of the story I read about, uh, a, there was a, a, a group of students in college, they were taking a doctrinal class, and when they got to this issue, that the teacher talked about it, and he said, now I want the class to divide up, and on one side, if you believe in election, I want you to go over on this side, and if you believe in free will, I want you to go over on this side. So the students, they, they divided up to the election of free will, but there was one guy, and he was still in the middle, and he's kind of thinking about it, and he's not sure. And then finally, he says, you know, I, I really do believe that God's in control of everything, so I'm going to go over with the election group. So he goes over to the election group, but they're a little suspicious because it took him so long to figure it out. So they're like, hey, who sent you here? And he said, nobody sent me here. I, I chose to come here of my own free will. And they said, oh, well, then you can't be in our group. You go over with them. So he, he goes over to them, and he's getting there like, oh, great, we're glad you're in our group. And they're, you know, they're like, uh, you know, we're glad you decided to come join our group. And he said, well, I didn't decide they sent me here. And they're like, oh, well, you can't be in our group either. And the guy's kind of stuck in the middle. And I think that for many of us, that's an uncomfortable place to really not be able to say, I belong to this group or I belong to this group. And yet many times I believe it's probably the, the, the better place to be. Let me just tell you how I reconcile this whole issue of election and free will. I, I don't really, basically. Uh, when I read a passage that just clearly teaches election, and I might read it in the Greek and study it and just be like, you know what, that's just teaching election. When I read a passage like that, I just agree with it. 
I believe God's in control. I believe God makes decisions. I believe God can do whatever God wants to do. He's God. And I'm all for that. I, you know, I think that's good. But when I read verses like John 3.16 and I read it and I just, it looks like God's telling us to make choices, to make decisions. I agree with that. Because I believe that we are responsible for the choices that we make in this life. That to a certain degree we're free moral agents. How do we, how do we reconcile these two? Well, I don't know that we do. I don't know that we're intelligent enough to be able to do that. And so I kind of like what J.I. Packer says. He says, just let God be God. Let him be wiser than men. You know, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with a God where I could understand everything about him. Maybe someday when we get to heaven, you know, we'll, we'll have a little more intelligence and be able to figure it out. But here's the good news. The good news is this, that the Bible says in some way God chose you. Because of his love, he chose you, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because, and this is important as we'll see, he chose you because he wanted you. Now, I don't know if you feel wanted, but God's saying, I want you. And that's why I chose you. Because of God's love, he chose us. And a second thing he says is God, because of his love, has made us whole. Now, we talked about this this week, so we'll move through this quickly. But in verse 4, he says this. For he chose us. Now, notice one of the things he chose us for. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be two things, holy and blameless in his sight. And that's important. Now, we talk about sin, and there's a lot of different definitions of sin. And I know that we live in a world where sin is not a popular topic. People don't like to talk about it. People don't want the guilt associated with it. So a lot of people today say there is no sin. Um, You know what? They're just wrong because there is sin. I don't know how you can live in this world and not think that there isn't sin. And sin, on a very kind of fundamental level, is just this. God created every one of us with purposes in mind. And sin is when we deviate from God's purposes for our life. So for instance, uh, the, the scriptures describe life like a path. God made us, he created us, he puts us down on this earth at a certain place and time and a family with, with certain resources and there's a destination. And God has a path for us to get there. God says, I have a, I have a path for you. Um, I have a path of priorities for you. Sin is when we decide, God, I, I, want, I want to pursue other priorities, not yours. Sin is when God says, I have certain ethics I want you to live by as you go through life. And we say, I don't want to do those. I, 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 I want to have a different set of ethics. When, when God says, here's some wealth, and I want you to use it for certain things, and we go, no, God, I want to do other things with my wealth. I want to do other things with my relationships. Uh, I want to do other things with my passions and, 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 and with my body and with my sexuality. I know what you want me to do, God, but I don't want to do those. I want to do something else. And that's sin, deviating from God's path for our life. And there are many kind of devastating results of sin, but two that come up a lot are uh, death. The Bible says that because of sin, we are, we're spiritually disconnected from God. So we're spiritually dead. But we also know that physically, we're dying. Physically, we're headed in a certain direction. And it's not a good direction for the body. So in the process of physically dying while we're on this earth, there's another result of sin. And that is, for lack of a better word, we live dysfunctional lives. That is, we can't function in a whole way on this earth apart from Christ. Our thinking is dysfunctional. Our emotions, emotions are God-given emotions, but they're dysfunctional because we're spiritually dead, relationally, in, in terms of priorities. But notice what it says here. It says, because God loves us, it says that he wants to make us whole. Now, if you're here last week, we talked about the word saint. 
And you might remember, because you're very, very intelligent, you remember things, that the word saint is the word hagias in the Greek, and this word for holy is also the word hagias. It's the exact same word in the Greek because they mean the same thing. It means to be set apart from the usual stuff for something uncommon, for something that's above and beyond what common things are happening. It means that God has set us apart from old purposes to new purposes, from an old destiny to a new destiny. He's given us new priorities in life. He wants to make us holy. Now, this, this passage was written in the Greek. But if you were to go to the Old Testament and you were to see the word holy, which appears many times, a couple hundred times, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for holy uh, had the basic meaning of whole, that is W-H-O-L-E. To be holy is to be a whole person. And when Christ comes into our life, he, he takes away that dysfunction and he makes us a whole person. We can have whole thinking again. We can, we can be those who have uh, words that, that reflect the wholeness, actions and relationships that reflect this wholeness. And so it says that God came to make us holy and Another word that kind of describes this is the word blameless. And that word basically means a sacrifice that's fit to offer God. In other words, it means that you, you no longer have any blame for your sin. You, you no longer carry any guilt. For your sin, it means that, that you are acceptable to God. You're approved by God. It doesn't mean you never sin. It just means that when God sees you, he doesn't judge you according to that sin because you're in Christ. So it's as part of what God's done because of his love for us is he chose us and he's made us whole. Now you might be thinking, that's really cool. I'd love to be a whole person. When do I get to start being whole? This is a really cool part. Watch what he says here. He chose us in him. Now say this with me. Before the creation of the world, God chose us to be holy and God chose us to be blameless before we existed. It wasn't like God created Adam and Eve and then they sinned and then God had to have a, a meeting with the Trinity and say, what am I going to do? I didn't see this coming and then and, and they've sinned and now we've got to come up with a plan. And No, what scripture says is God knew everything people would ever do before people were ever created, before humanity existed. God knew what we would do. He knew what Satan would do. He knew what Adam and Eve would do. He knew what you would do. And the point is this. He chose you anyways. He made you anyways. He's loved you Anyway, and he planned on your rescue. In many ways, the cross of Christ is not a reaction to anything. It's a hard thing for us to imagine, but the the cross of Christ was always God's plan. Now, that's a hard one to get your mind around, but what he's saying is this. We don't have to earn wholeness. We don't have to work towards wholeness. Wholeness isn't something we're going to become one day. What he's saying in here is that we are already whole in Christ. If this makes sense, maybe you can think about it this way. We live on an earth where time exists and time passes by. But for God in heaven, there is no time. Time does not pass by. There's no time. So if God says to us, that you know, you're know you going to be holy and blameless one day. It's why in this passage, he talks about it in the past tense. That's hard for us to imagine. But let me just, if I could dig down a little bit, part of what he's saying is this. Before you gave your life to Christ, it's a stranger, but before you gave your life to Christ, you were already, in God's eyes, you, it was already a done deal. You were already whole in God's eyes. You were already right. 
Because God had already in heaven sent Christ and you had already been included in Christ. Our wholeness is a done deal. Now we can just be people who are whole, people who are holy. God says now you can be now today a person with a whole attitude, a person with right thinking, with right relationships, with a whole kind of faith, not just when you get to heaven, but today. So he says, God has chose us because of his love and God has made us whole because of his love. And that's a topic we'll, we'll look at a lot more in the future. I want to get to the last one here and that is that God is also, and this is kind of the culmination of what he's talking about. Why did he choose us and why did he make us whole? Because he wanted to make us his. That's why God did this. In verse four again, he says this, in love, he predestined us. What? For he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Now, this, this letter that we're studying was written uh, about 2,000 years ago at a time in Roman history where the family was really serious business. Now, when we think of families today, we don't think of families the way Romans thought of families back then. Back then, family business was serious business. Uh, for instance, in a Roman family, the father of a household had absolute power over his children. We have no idea what that means today, okay? But back then, fathers... Let me, let me d- explain to you legally the kind of absolute power fathers had over their children. For instance, fathers had the power of life and death over their children. If a kid was really acting up, I don't know what they'd have to do, but the father could have his child condemned to death. Now, here's the really crazy part. For the child's entire life while the father was alive. A father was a father legally of his kids until he was dead or they were dead, whichever came first. If an adult was 60 years old and their dad was 80 years old, dad still had absolute power over his kids. The power of life and death. As long as the father was alive, he owned everything that belonged to the children. So if a, if a child grew up, moved out of the house and bought a house, legally dad owned the house. If they bought a business, legally dad owned the business. If they made a billion dollars legally, that was dad's money. Now dad could just let the children have it, but it was under dad's power. He had absolute power over decisions. Every, every kind of decision in their child's life, even when they're full grown, over their finances, relationally, if dad said, I don't want you hanging out with that kid, that was it. If dad said, I don't want you marrying him or marrying her, no questions asked because dad had absolute control, absolute power. Which kind of explains, by the way, if you've read a lot about history back in the Roman days, it's why a lot of fathers mysteriously died. (laughs) It was the only way out for some children. Adoption was also a very, very serious business. If a couple decided back in those days that they wanted to adopt a child and they they legally went through the process and adopted a child into their family, that child would have all the rights that the natural born children in the family had. There could be no distinction between them. It's not like the the kids who were born in the family had a little more right or a little more wealth. The adopted child had the same status as the naturally born children. Yeah, it would have the same access to wealth that the children born in the family would have. It would have the same privileges and it would get the same inheritance 
as the children who were born into the family. And all former family ties were dissolved. So let's say a, a husband and wife decide to adopt a child. When they adopted that child, that child got their name, obviously. But it was more than that. If that child, um, and when I say child, let me explain a little bit. Um, it wasn't uncommon for 40-year-old men to be adopted. And I think you'll understand why in a moment, why it wasn't uncommon in the Roman Empire for full-grown adults to be adopted into other families. Because if someone was adopted into another family, all of their debts were, from their former name were gone. They were gone. So let's say, you know, if John Smith owed a million dollars to someone and he, he, he was adopted into the Jones family, legally he wasn't responsible because he's not a Smith anymore. He's a Jones. And that explains, for instance, why a lot of people who are deeply in debt would get adopted in those days if they could find someone who would do it. Uh, their reputation was gone. So let's say you belong to a family that had a terrible reputation and now you, you joined another family, you were adopted. It, there was actually punishment for people who talked about you and associated you with your old family. They weren't legally allowed to do that. Um, Legal liabilities, let's say before you were adopted, you had a bunch of speeding tickets, you know, that you never paid and, and uh, they were after you. You know, when you, when you got into the new family, you weren't that person that was on those tickets anymore. You're not liable. And, and uh, f- one of the things that would happen is sometimes, um, and we'll talk more about this next week, but sometimes people would go into debt and in those days you couldn't declare bankruptcy. If you went into debt, you went into debtor's prison um, or maybe you were a slave and somebody decided they wanted to adopt you, they could adopt a slave, they could adopt someone in prison. You could adopt someone in prison and they got out of prison because they weren't that person anymore. And they would get in this whole brand new life. Now the reason that's significant is because the Bible says the human family, the human race had built up a tremendous debt with God because of our sin. We were in, if you will, and we'll talk about this more next week, we, we were in prison, we were enslaved because of our sin. Uh, we inherited sin from Adam and Eve and from everyone who's come after them. We've inherited that, but we've also been those who have added to it. And the whole human family has built up this terrible debt. And our family inheritance was it was a dead end. It says the wages of sin, the payoff of sin, the Bible says, is death. And God wanted to adopt us into his family, so he sent Jesus to pay the debt, if you will, and again, we'll talk about this next week, to redeem us, to purchase us. But, but the upshot for what Paul's saying this week is that when we come to Christ, he takes us out of an old family, out of an old debt, out of old obligations, out of an old debt, and then he puts us in a brand new family. And all that stuff is gone. It is no more. There's no legal ramifications. We're not held accountable for it. We're brand new people. We have a new father. We have a new family. And we have a brand new future in Christ. Why did God do that for us? What motivated God to do that? Well, it tells us, it says, in love, he predestined us. He did it because he loves us. And notice what it says, in accordance with his pleasure and his will. What it says is God did it because he wanted to do it. God did it because it brought him joy to adopt us. No one forced God to do it. It wasn't like one of those, oh no, you know, what am I going to do? How embarrassing, my kids messed up, and now how am I, you know. No, God brought us into his family, not because he was obligated, but because he wanted to. In Romans eight fifteen, it, it 
it tells us this, you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children. We are God's children. God is our father, adopted into his family, calling him Abba, Father. And that word Abba uh, is, a, is the word in that day, that word literally meant daddy. So it's, this is kind of a revolutionary thing when Paul wrote this. Paul's saying, you know, uh, God is uh, almighty, omniscient, creator, eternal, all that kind of stuff, but you can call him daddy. He wants to have that kind of relationship with you. You know, I was thinking this week, God could have made us and said, you guys are going to be my, my slaves. I mean, he's God. If God wanted to create a race of people and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you life and you're going to be my slaves. I don't know about you, but I would have been okay with that because he's God. He can do what he wants. He could have created us to be slaves. He could have, God could have created us um, to be citizens. He could have said, I'm going to create a, a kingdom and, and I'm going to be the king and you're going to be the citizens. And, you know, we're not going to really you know, hang out together, socialize, because I'm the king and you're citizens. But uh, every now and then I'll come out and wave my, you know, hand and you can see me and that'll be cool. And he could have done that and we would have been like, sweet, because he's God. (laughs) He can do whatever he wants. If he wants to create us and have that distance, I guess he can do that. He could have said, well, we'll we'll be friends. I'll call you every now and then. We'll say hi, you know, do a little instant messaging. And maybe we'll do lunch every now and then when you get to heaven. But that's not what he does. It says he invites us to someplace deeper. He says, you can call me dad. In fact, literally he says, you can call me daddy. I want to have that kind of relationship with you. I'm adopting you into my family, not as a slave, not as a citizen, not even as just a friend, but as my son, as, as my daughter. I was reading an interview this past week from a guy who was a, adopted and um, when he was an infant, and his parents didn't tell him he was adopted until he was in high school. And he, he, he writes this story about how when he first found out, when his parents sat him down and they said, you know, you're adopted, how he kind of went through this, this period of shock. You know, he, he couldn't believe it. He'd never suspected he was adopted. And uh, so he kind of went through this period where he was shocked. And then he, he started to kind of realize, you know, he'd look at these people and go, they're not my parents. And he went through this, this period of depression and he talks a little bit about that and then kind of a period of just trying to process it. And then he thought he'd want to look for his parents. So he began to look for his, his real, his natural parents. But during this whole process, he started to kind of notice some people around him, some of his friends and other people who were, who were born into families. And he noticed that some of these people who were born into families. They weren't, they weren't really planned, you know? They were kind of like, accidents and they were they were some of them were treated like accidents in the family he said he had some friends that were born into families but they weren't really wanted and some of them who were born into families and they weren't they weren't really loved even though they were born into that and he said that was significant because he 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 came to this realization where he said i knew without a doubt that my adoptive parents wanted me he knew that there was no question it was not an accident, you know? It wasn't some, it was what they wanted. See, an adoption just screams out the truth. I am wanted, and that's you. God adopted you because he wanted you. God adopted you because he loves you. Now, for a lot of people, that's so difficult to comprehend. 
couple weeks ago, I was listening to a, de- a, a debate between an atheist and a Christian. And the atheist was a guy named Christopher Hitchens. And uh, he travels all over the world and debates Christians. And, and he, he made this statement in the middle of his debate. And it just, it, it caused me to pause and think how sad for this guy. He said this. He said, Christianity is the worst kind of arrogance. Because if there really was a God, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with us because we're a mess. And I thought, well, you know, on one hand, he's kind of right, isn't he? We are a mess. It's hard to imagine why God would want us, but he does. He does want us. It's one of the mysteries, quite frankly. I don't know why he wants us. I don't know what he saw in us. You just have to take it by faith. He says, I love you. I sent my son for you because I wanted you, because I love you. You're my child. And I want you to notice the result of our adoption. In verse six, he wraps it up, this section this way. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely gave gave us in the one he loves. This is one of those verses that I read this week and I read it again and I read it again and I read it in the Greek and I read it again and I read it in the NIV and in the NLT and in the NIV and all that kind of stuff. And I read it and I kept thinking, man, there's just something here. It just isn't saying what I think it's saying. And so I kind of looked at it. That word praise, it, it just means to speak highly of something or to uplift the reputation of something. And that word glory means to illuminate or or to magnify. And so I'm going to give you kind of the Bob revised version of this. I think what he's saying is this, when you're adopted, when you're in God's love, when you're in God's grace, when you're in all this stuff, and when you're living in it, it says it gives God's grace an excellent reputation in your world. You become like this billboard. You become like this spotlight. People can see grace. People like Christopher Hitchens are saying things like, I don't know why God would want to have anything to do with a person. But when you start to live in God's grace, understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying when you work really hard to look like a person in, God, in God's love, because that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when you stop trying to be good enough, when you stop trying to earn it, when you stop trying to work for it, and just be what God has already made you to be. You're already loved. You're already forgiven. You're already in grace. You're already all that stuff. Stop trying and just be that. And when you do that, when you live in that grace and that peace and that wholeness in that guilt-free kind of life, unbelievers are going to see that. They're going to see that and it's going to bring praise to God because they're going to see it and go, oh, Now I see it's not about religion and it's not about ritual. Now I can see what it looks like. And the Bible says it's going to bring praise to God. Believers will see that in your life and and it will bring praise. It will lift up, it will put a spotlight on God's glorious grace. The people around you, for those of you who are married, your mate will begin to see that in you and it will cause them to praise God. Maybe for some of you who live at home here, uh, your parents will see that in you and it will bring praise to God. In fact, the Bible says angelic beings look down and, and see God's grace in us and they don't fully get it, but it causes them to bring praise to God. People spend their whole life looking to be loved. In the years that I've been a pastor, I've seen so many people who wanted so desperately to be loved. People who had given their life to Christ, but they wanted so desperately to be loved by someone that they were willing to sacrifice their integrity so someone would love them. They were willing to sacrifice their body. They were willing to give away their purity. 
They were willing to give away their virginity. They were willing to give away the sanctity of marriage just because they so desperately wanted to be loved by another human being. People who were willing to, to, to give up their beliefs. People who were willing to be used and people who have been willing to be abused just to feel loved. And in the middle of this, God comes and says, you don't understand. You already are loved. You couldn't possibly be more loved than you are right now at this moment. You are loved by the Father. That's all the love you'll ever need. What would our lives look like if we just accepted that, if we just breathed that in and realized we are loved. Father God, I want to thank you for these words in Ephesians. I thank you for the Apostle Paul. Here is a guy in prison and he's writing words like this. So amazing to me. A man who is in prison for living for Jesus and his words are, man, we are loved and, and we are rich in Jesus Christ. Father God, my prayer for us this morning, for each one of us who are here, is that we would live in that love. For those of us who have been living in, in, in insecurity and, and living in fear and, and had a deep desire to, to be accepted by other people and we've been kind of focused on that, that we would just realize this morning that in Jesus we are loved we are as, as loved as we will ever be. We couldn't be more loved than we are. And your, your call to us this morning is just be. Just be loved. Just breathe in the love of the Father. To breathe in our, our, our adoption. To enjoy it. I thank you, Father, that your love sent your Son so that we could be here today to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. And if you're here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ, you've never made that decision, uh, and you want to experience God's love in your life, I'm going to be up here afterwards and I'd love to talk with you about how you can do that. Let's worship together.